So I, I don't have a Mother's Day uh, sermon today. We are continuing on in the book of Matthew uh, where we left off. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 4 and we're going to take uh, verse in 18 to the end. Uh, but what, what I am reminded of today as we just uh, experienced our family time together and a lot of just the weighty, uh, heavy things uh, that we've heard um, is actually, it, it reminded me why uh, we're actually here right now. Uh, it reminded me why there are churches right now all over the world that are gathered, why a church even exists. And the reason the church exists is because the gospel exists. And the reason the gospel exists is because this kingdom's busted. It's broken. It's a broken kingdom. If everything was fine, if no one ever lost kids, if no one ever got sick, if nothing ever happened, there would be absolutely no need for a Jesus, for a savior. But, but because there is, there's an ultimate necessity for a savior, which is why the church ultimately exists which is why we're here today. Um, this kingdom is broken. There is a kingdom coming that will not be. And this is what we're going to talk about today in Matthew. All right. So let's look at that. We'll take this in two sections. Um, Matthew chapter 4. Uh, first, we'll, we'll kind of deal with 18 through 22, which says this. Jesus has just begun his ministry, by the way. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. What are these guys otherwise known as? The sons of thunder. And they were in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So what we have uh, here is, is Jesus calling his first disciples, obviously not all of them, just four of them, Peter, Andrew, uh, James, John, and their profession was one of fishermen. They were fishermen. Okay? They, uh, fishing was their life. Fishing was their livelihood. And because fishing uh, was their life, um, this place, this Sea of Galilee, um, was all that they knew. This is where they worked every day, all day, day in and, and day out. It's called the Sea of Galilee. It was, it was actually a lake. Uh, I don't know why the Jews called every body of water a sea. Uh, but, but it was big. So uh, maybe the size of the Great Lakes, but, but this, this place, this sea, this lake was their, their home. The Sea of Galilee was actually, like I said, a lake that was below sea level. It's about 13 miles long, about nine miles wide, big enough to be a sea. Um, it's called the Sea of Galilee because it's in the district or the area of Galilee. Um, but it's gone by a couple other names in the Bible too. Uh, Joshua actually refers to it as the Sea of Gennesaret or Kinneret, uh, which comes from the Hebrew word Kinnor, which means harp. And if you open one of your you know, fancy Bibles where they got the maps in the back and, and you look at a top-down view of uh, the area at that time, you would see the, the Sea of Galilee is shaped exactly like a harp, which is kind of what it was known as uh, in the Old Testament or known by. Uh, but this sea, this lake, uh, was their lives. 
It was all that they knew. Now, when this narrative took place here in Matthew 4, Jesus was not completely new to these guys. I think it can appear that way if you haven't read the other Gospels or uh, synchronized them uh, historically. Uh, if you're just reading this, you're thinking, gosh, this is the first time they've ever seen this dude. He's a complete stranger. And in ways he was, but, but Jesus wasn't completely new uh, to them. Uh, they were already familiar with Jesus because we're told in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 35 through 42, that they were buddies of Johnny B. That's a uh, John the Baptist street name. That's his rapper name, Johnny B. Okay, and and um, he and, and and they were present with him even at that time when Jesus walked by John uh, at his baptism, and made, and John made that legendary statement: "Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world." They were present for that. We know that Andrew and a couple of these guys were. So they were very much familiar at this time, as was everybody living in this area. They were familiar with this guy, Jesus. They knew something was going on. And yet, at this time in Matthew 4, um, they were still four less than ordinary guys just kind of existing uh, day in and day out to, to do their day job, to fish. And so that's what we find them doing here. That's what Jesus finds them doing here. But at this point in the text, Jesus is now going to come to them personally and tell them to drop everything. And the weird thing is that they do. They do. And by doing so, at that moment, they became disciples. They became disciples. Now, what is a disciple? What does that mean? The answer is actually in the text. It's, it's the word that Jesus uses. Uh, it's, a, it's a follower. It's one who follows behind or under a teacher or a master or at this time, it would be a rabbi, right? So a disciple is not something that one becomes after they follow for so long a teacher or a master for a certain period of time. It's not something that you're working towards as you follow somebody. A disciple is something that you are, that you are once you begin to follow that person. From this point on, from the moment these guys followed Jesus that day, they were referred to after that as his disciples, which is, which is kind of cool. I mean, that's encouraging for somebody like me uh, who doesn't always have it together. That should be encouraging to you. Um, in all of the immaturity of these guys that day, the state that he found them in, all their immaturity, all their imperfection, all their lack of understanding, their lack of knowledge, their lack of education, their lack of experience, they were in that moment his disciples. They were his disciples. Notice that Jesus does not say to them, go take this class, right, and you'll be my disciple. Or go read this book and then come back and you'll be my disciple. Or go attend this conference. It's going to be a really good one. It'll give you a lot of information, and then you come back, and you will be my disciple. Or uh, one of the ones that we, uh, I think, are caught up in these days, go attend four years of seminary, you know, um, which, by the way, you will be paying off that loan for the rest of your life, and then come back, and you will be my disciple, uh, or become a member of this synagogue, and then you'll be my disciple. He simply says, follow me. Follow me, and they became Right then, disciples. Okay. And, and um, I think this is important for us to observe because we tend to think in our current Christian culture that discipleship looks like um, 
this, or discipleship looks like that. Once I do this, I will become a, be a disciple of Jesus. Once I achieve this thing, I will have been discipled. And Jesus simply says, follow me. And in doing so, from the very outset, we are his disciples. Now, it's important to note because it isn't fully come through in the English that when Jesus comes to these guys and he says, follow me, he's not asking them. He's telling them. He's telling them. It's not an invitation, right? Kind of like when we're sharing the gospel, when we're preaching the gospel, and we say, repent. We're not, we're not, tell, we're not inviting. We're not asking them to. We're telling them to repent as if it's their only option, as if there is no other option that's going to go well, right? So we're not, we're not asking people to invite Jesus into their hearts. I have no idea where this comes from. Stop saying that. People don't invite Jesus into their hearts. It doesn't work that way. It's not a suggestion when we preach the gospel. We command when we preach the gospel for people everywhere to repent, to repent, just as Jesus did, to, to, to turn. It's an emphatic statement in the Greek. It comes in the Greek. It really doesn't come out well in the English. Uh, it's a statement rather than a suggestion. When he says, follow me, it's, a command. it's an imperative. You have to. You must. He's saying to them, basically, let's go. As if the decision's already been made for him, right? And uh, they do. <laughs> and, and of course, we know that the decision kind of has been made for him. Um, we know when we get to the book of John, there's a lot uh, that is revealed to us as far as what the Father has done uh, in, in the lives of those disciples. Who They, they were not uh, people that he came around and the ones that just happened to respond kindly to Jesus. They, before they were even born, before Jesus was even born and came to earth, were, were handpicked by the Father to be these guys. When you get to the high priestly prayer of John chapter 17, it, it especially comes out. You can't miss it because Jesus is about to leave. He's about to die. And these dudes are about to be scattered. And he spends his whole time praying for these guys whom the Father has given him. That none would be lost. Right? And then he goes on after that, this is more mind-blowing, to pray for you and I. Those who, welcome, who, those who you will give me, I pray for them too. Right? And so, like, in a, in a sense, this is, the, I mean, they have, to, they have to come, you know? They have to come. They're, they, they're, they belong to God for this purpose. They were born for this purpose, right? It's important to note because it doesn't fully come through uh, in the English when he says, follow me. He's not asking, he's telling. Now, let's consider for a moment the position these guys are in. Because this is, this is kind of mind-blowing to me. When it says that they left their nets, it might as well have said they left their lives. They left their lives. That's what they were really doing. They left their livelihood. They left their security. They left everything that they lived for, everything that they knew, everything that was familiar, everything that was safe to them, they left their lives. And how long did it take them to do so? The word there is immediately immediately they left, which means without question, without deliberation, they didn't sit around and, and like, hey, let's go ahead and weigh this out real quick, you know, between the two of them or between the four of them. It's like, no, th this was without concern or thought or worry immediately, like in a moment, these guys obeyed and followed. In a moment, they bailed, they jumped ship, pun intended, right? 
Um, for, furthermore, as if walking off the job isn't extreme enough, uh, you even have the added extra extreme with James and John, who also walked away from their dad. So they're not only walking away from their livelihood and their jobs, these two guys are walking away from family. They left dad basically holding the net, holding the responsibility, holding the burden. I'm sure that dad appreciated these guys' help at that time. They may even, were, were, were probably even up for getting the business one day. You know what I mean? For getting the family business. And they walked. And they left him holding the net. To say that this is radical would be an understatement. By all rights, we could say that their response was straight up crazy. Irresponsible even. Irresponsible even by human standards, and yet the text says immediately they left their nets. I mean, how radical is that? How, how extreme is that? And yet, that is what it looks like to follow Jesus. That is what it looks like to follow Jesus. We walk out on some stuff when we follow Jesus. We abandon some stuff. Even sometimes some important stuff. And I know this is one of this, these things in our, our comfort Christianity culture that we don't like to talk about, think about, but we must. Because the, this, this, kind, this kind of radical response is, is given to us over and over and over again in the text. It's given to us over and over and over again in our Bibles, in our scriptures, that this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus. When, he, when his command and his call to follow him enters the life of the one who's being saved, it is so compelling, it is so convicting, it is so urgent that nothing, no matter the cost, no matter the appearance of it to others or the working out of the details matters more than to respond in following Jesus. These guys walked off the job that day. And yeah, they would fish again. Like we're gonna see them fishing again. Like they're not completely done with it. Now we're going to see them fishing in the future, but it would not be their primary concern. Following Jesus would be their primary concern. I can't help when I'm, when I'm thinking about their response, the, the contrast that we have in this other story, this other character in the Gospels known as the rich young ruler, right? I think we're all familiar with this young man. It's found in, the account's found in Mark 10. It's also found in Luke 18. And what we have is this man who comes to Jesus and really he kind of quote unquote has it together, right? Uh, religiously speaking, he was very religious. He was very devout. He was a man who paid attention to Jesus. He had the desire to follow Jesus, yet unfortunately only on his terms. How many people does this describe, right? It, it, it describes me a lot of days, okay, if I'm to be honest. Yeah, yeah, Jesus, I want, I want what you have to offer as long as it looks like this. As long as it looks like this. Just don't ask me to do that, right? Don't make me give up this thing. And, and, and you know what kept the rich young ruler as well as what keeps many people today from following Jesus? He was caught in a net. He was caught in a net. He, he was loving something else more ultimately and I don't believe this is probably the original intent of Matthew um, in this section here, uh, but I can't help but to see the imagery that we have in the statement, immediately they left their nets. Immediately they left their nets. That's what it looks like to follow Jesus. We leave our nets. We leave our nets. We walk away from the things that we have been caught in to be all in with him, right? Right? 
It is Jesus who said you cannot serve two masters, right? He taught us that. It's simply an impossibility. One's going to win, the other's going to lose. That's the way it, it works. It's just human nature. One will be elevated, the other one will be despised. And, and I know because I've tried this many times in my Christian walk to, to, to walk the fence and to find that line of, of giving my heart and, and, and my love to this thing over here while maintaining a heart of love towards Jesus. And it starts out okay, like, okay, like this is manageable. I can love this and love this at the same time just as much. And, and eventually it just crashes. And, 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 and something ends up getting compromised, one of the two. It doesn't work. In our, in our sinful humanness, our, we're built so that our allegiance can only be ultimately to one thing at a time. And Jesus is asking for ours when he tells us to follow him. That's what he's saying, to count the cost, to pick up your cross, or if you're a rich young ruler, to walk away from that thing that you love more than anything else, right? The difference between the rich young ruler following Jesus or not did not come down to how much he did do because he was a pretty good dude, according to the text. He did a lot. It came down to the one thing he was unwilling to do, right? The one net that he was unwilling to leave. And that's what he remained caught in, his riches. But these four guys, these four guys on the shore of Galilee that day, though in some ways could be considered dumb as a bag of hammers, you know what I mean? Just average fishermen had it where it counted because they left their nets. They walked away from their everything, right? And I just think that we should consider this in our lives daily with Christ. What are those nets? Because, because the nets continue to come in and, and, and catch us. They continue to contend for our allegiance in our lives. And we need to examine ourselves honestly, regularly to see what that thing is that's creeping in between us and our ability to fully follow and enjoy Christ. Right? So he, he, these guys walk away. They, they leave their nets and to do what? Well, according to Jesus, to fish for something else. Okay, so, so like this is kind of cool for them. Like this is, this is redeeming uh, because they weren't going to have to give up fishing completely. It was just going to start to look a little different, Right? Just a different kind of fishing. So they're going to learn to, to fish for something better. They're going to learn how to fish for something more important. Well, I, I don't know, Jesus. They might have said, like, like, what we're doing is pretty important. Like, it pays the bills. Like, like this kind of fishing is pretty important. What can be more important than that? People. People. We live in one of the most coveted areas in the Northwest, you and I. We're pretty blessed to be where we're at. Lots of people would love to be here, try to find ways to move here. It's a hard market to break into. But there's a reason it's so coveted. One of them is it's fishing, right? We love our fishing here. It's good. But even so, we, we don't fish here to pay our bills, do we? Right? We, we fish for sport. We fish for recreation. We love it. We love the thrill of it, the gratification of it. I got to go out, you know, last summer with, with uh, my bro on his boat, you know. Um, and uh, it was just a blast when we started hooking them and bringing them in. It was like, wow, this is, this is awesome, right? 
And, and, and yet, like, in a way, it's kind of, like, silly and sad to think that Christians living here can be so passionate and so committed and dedicated and immersed in a lifestyle of fishing in water, but not out. Don't get me wrong, I love my fishing. I fish too, like I just said. Uh, that it is a hobby that we enjoy is not sinful and bad in and of itself. I'm just saying, how much more as Christians should we be committed to, dedicated to, passionate for fish out of water? People. People. Jesus didn't call these guys away from fishing. He's just asking them to come and check out a new fishing hole. Right? He's calling them from the water to the shore to fish. I have to ask myself regularly, and I, and I guess I'll just ask you, since we're here today, like, how, how are we doing with this, church? Like, how, how are we doing with this? And this isn't to put rocks in your bag or to crush you or to make you feel bad or to make you feel guilty. I just want to remind you that you exist on this earth to fish for men. That's why the church is here. And how are we doing with this? Is fishing for men an imperative in your life? Is it a must or is it an option, an afterthought? Again, followers of Jesus go where Jesus goes. They do what Jesus does. They're about what Jesus is about. And Jesus was about saving people, was about fishing for people. He's not about the beautiful 14-pounder he caught up at Wikiup. He's about the sinner that he caught at a Samaritan well one day. That's the Jesus we follow. That's the Jesus we say we follow. That's what he was about. These guys are going to learn that kind of fishing. They're going to learn to love that kind of fishing even. So while we're on the subject of disciples, I want to make sure that we all understand how a disciple works. And I know I alluded to this, and this might seem like, like kind of elementary, but I, I think that this is important because there seems to be some confusion about this these days in the church. And when I say the church, I don't mean in, in this church specifically, but at large, okay? There's a lot of rumblings about uh, what it looks like to be discipled or to be a disciple. Jesus says, follow me, follow me. What this means is that he is the object, okay? You with me? Jesus is the object. He's the one to follow. He's the centerpiece. He's the one that we are to have our crosshairs firmly fixed on. Not any other man, not your pastor, not your mentor, not your church or the evangelical movement that you might have got saved through when you attended. Okay, It's not the dude that, that said the, the sinner's prayer with you, and it's not the guy that baptized you. It's Jesus that we are to follow. Because pastors come and go, and mentors come and go, and evangelical movements come and go, and churches come and go, but he does not. He does not. He remains, and he remains perfect. To be a disciple of Jesus is to follow Jesus regardless of what everybody else around you is doing, regardless of what everyone else is doing, regardless of what happens to everybody else. And you know what that means? It means that we have no excuse. It means that we have no excuse. We have no excuse as to why we're not doing well in our walk with Jesus. Do you see where I'm going with this? Right? In our love towards others. In our service towards others. In our personal growth before him. 
We have no excuse. And, and the reason I say this is because I believe it's really easy, easy for us. I know that I've done this so many times and I can find myself being caught up in it. It's really easy for us to blame the people and the experiences and the relationships around us, whether it's in our leaders or our fellow congregants, our brothers and sisters in Christ, for why we're not where we should be as followers of Jesus. It's really easy for us to do that. We just become victims of everything that happens, which then becomes the excuse for why we don't follow Jesus well. That's not someone who's following Jesus and has their eyes fixed on Jesus. That's someone who has their eyes fixed on something they shouldn't have their eyes fixed on. If Jesus is the one we're following, which he should be, that's who we're a disciple of, ultimately, first and foremost, then there are no excuses, regardless of what everybody's doing, for why we can't do what we should be doing. It's easy to point at the one who's let us down and who's hurt us and disappointed us and say, this is why I'm not doing well in Christ. You ever heard that? Have you ever said that? I'm not pursuing Christ the way that I otherwise would be because of what this person did or what happened at that church, right? Or, or I'm not a, this is why I'm not a church, attending church anymore. Or this is why I'm not fellowshipping anymore. Or this is why I'm not praying anymore. Or this is why I'm not reading my Bible anymore. The progression, the spiral. Or this is why I don't even care anymore. It's because of what happened way back then when I was at this church. Or what happened with this pastor and then he fell. Or what happened in this close relationship with these people that I thought loved me, that I got close to in this church. When we follow Jesus, it, 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 it alleviates our ability to say it's because, it's because of the people of God that I'm the way that I am in my Christian walk, Lord. They failed me. They wounded me. They betrayed me, right? Really? An imperfect person, like, wounded you and failed you and betrayed you? Like, it's going to happen here. And I get it. I mean, this is like the, the primary reason, I think, why a lot of people will, will come in to a church late and leave early and sit in the back and never go to a Bible study, and never interact, never come into the inner circle, is because close contact Christianity leaves open the possibility of hurt. So we like distant, detached Christianity, which really isn't Christianity at all. It's not doing anybody any good at that point, not you or the congregation. I love you guys. I love what Ashley said today. Like, I appreciate this place, that this is like my family. You know what I mean? We are like family. But we are a, a group of imperfect people that it is inevitable. The, the more that we do life together, we will at times rub up against each other wrong. We just have to know that. We have to know that that's part of what it looks like to do life, even in Christ. And then we have to forgive and implement the things that our word tells us to implement so that we can move on. So that a relationship can be stronger and so that we can be stronger and God can be more glorified and everything that's going on in our relationships. It's hard. It gets tiring sometimes, but that's just the way it is. We are going to let each other down. But that never excuses us for why we're not doing well in following Jesus. Because he's the one we follow. He's the one we follow. Man, every single one of them will fail you, but Jesus will not. Man will blow it, but Jesus will not. Man will have bad days, but 
Jesus will not, right? Man will give you reasons not to follow Jesus, but Jesus will not. This is why we, we follow him. If you are a disciple of Jesus, remember that it's because you follow Jesus. And when you do, you will grow. You will be changed. You will overcome. You will persevere. You will remain. You will be comforted. You will be strengthened. You will be renewed. You will be encouraged. Even when everything and everyone around you goes dark, he will not. Jesus doesn't go dark. He is the source of light and life. He is the perfect shepherd, teacher, preacher, mentor, master of men. And the more we become, the more that you and I become obsessed and immersed with Jesus, the more we will grow, the more we will love, the more we will forgive, the more we will persevere, and the more we will hope in all things. Do not place your hope or your allegiance on anybody but Christ. All right. Um, Final section. Let's read 23, 24, 25. He went throughout uh, all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. This is a widespread northern area over uh, Judah and Israel. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed uh, him from Galilee and the Decapolis, that's just uh, an area called the 10 cities, Deca is 10, and, and uh, Polis is, is cities, it's 10 cities, it's an area. And from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. This section, just reading it like it is, is pretty encouraging. Like this is a pretty neat section. What Jesus is doing here is undoubtedly awesome. In fact, it's so awesome, everybody knows it when they see it and they're hearing about it because his his fame spread really quick, far and wide because of what it is that he's doing. This This would have been an incredible thing to be around at that time. You know, but because of that, this section, we can approach it in several different ways. We can, we can have a couple different kind of takeaways from a section like this. One is this, and these are kind of, they're simplified, but they're kind of the most popular ones. It can mean that if you come to Jesus, he'll heal your physical deficiencies. In other words, this is a perfect proof text for prosperity theology or gospel. I mean, Can we deny that? That's what he's doing here. Everybody's being brought to him and they're all being healed. So that must be what it looks like. Or two, it can mean that the kingdom of God has come upon these people. The kingdom of God has come upon these people, a.k.a. something bigger is happening. It can mean that Jesus came to give us our best lives now, or it can mean that the king has showed up. And and I don't think you need to guess which one I think is true. It's the second one. This means that Satan and his kingdom is in trouble. That's what it means. Verses 23 through 25 tells us that the real power has arrived. The real authority has arrived. The word with a, a, a capital W has showed up, right? In Genesis chapter one, we see Jesus speaking creation into existence. And in these verses here, we see Jesus coming into that which he's created and speaking authority over that which exists. 
That's what's happening here. When we talk of sickness and disease and pains and possession and seizures, all these things mentioned here, all these things that even some of us have to deal with, we're speaking of things which you and I are completely powerless over, completely powerless over, things that we are at the mercy of. There are things that we cannot control, we, can't, that we cannot tell to go away, we cannot fix on our own, and what Jesus is publicly putting on display is that they are not things he can't control. Right? He, he, they're not things he cannot fix. They're not things he cannot order around. They are not things he is powerless over, but rather powerful over. He's openly declaring that unlike us, he is not at their mercy. They're at his. Praise God. He's making a power statement in what's going on there in those verses. A power statement. And by doing this, what he's doing is he's He's authenticating, he's authenticating everything else that he's about to do and say. Things that have to do with greater things than physical healing, right? Like spiritual healing, like exercising the power to forgive sin. In other words, the doctrine we should extract from his actions here concerning physical healing should not be come to Jesus, and he'll physically heal you. And don't, don't even get me wrong here. I believe that healings happen today. I do not believe um, that, there, that, that it is a mark across the board of Jesus coming into your life. In fact, I find a greater glorification of God in this world through his people in the suffering theology that we find in the Bible than I do the healing theology that we find in the Bible. But God can do whatever he wants. He sits on the same throne. His biceps as big as it was back then. He can order anything around that he wants to when he sees fit to. But it is not the norm. He is not obligated to. This is not ultimately the gospel that Jesus brought. Jesus brought a better one. This is what we're talking about. Um. Did you know that Jesus tells us how to interpret what we're seeing here in his healings? Did you know that he actually just straight up tells us? So, so like instead of me using the words that I've just used and you trusting that, um, if, you, if you go over to Mark chapter 2 real quick, why don't you go ahead and do that? Flip over to Mark chapter 2. We'll just read this together. The famous story of the tiles being taken off the road. These people come to Jesus' house and dismantle it. When Jesus returned to Capernaum, this is verse 1, chapter 2, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was, there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get uh, near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. You know Why? They came to that conclusion that he's blaspheming? Because everybody knows only God 
has the power to forgive sins, right? Who can forgive sins but God alone? They go ahead and acknowledge that next. Verse 8, and immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, says to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? What's easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. What's Jesus saying there? What is, what is he saying there? He's, he's saying, I have the power and authority to forgive man his sin, and this is really what I've come to do. But because you can't see it, to accept it, I'll show you my power by performing that which you can see. This is what he's telling us here. This is why he went around healing. This is why he, he opened up his public ministry by healing everybody that anybody brought to him. It was not because his message was, come to me and I'll fix you. Just so that you can die again one day of some other ailment. Right? I mean, that's the weirdest thing when you start thinking about even the, 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 the healing emphasis on a prosperity theology. How many of these people, these thousands of people that were brought before Jesus, do you think ended up dying? What percentage? 100%. Like, it, it didn't ultimately fix what they needed. Like, we all see that, and we all know that. So what was he doing? What, what, what was he showing this? The reason Jesus healed in the physical was display to display or authenticate his power and authority to heal spiritually. Spiritually. You can't look at somebody and say, that person's been forgiven of their sins. We don't get like a little, a little badge, you know what I mean? Um, like, you, you can't look at somebody and say that. But you can look upon someone who was once lame and say, that dude's walking, what's up? That makes a statement to everybody. That's what was going on here with Jesus healing. So, so Jesus was putting on open display through public healings, his absolute authority and power over our greatest ailment, which is sin, assuring us of his authority over all things that exist. I have a question for you. Do not fail. Do not fail. You don't have to answer out loud. What is the biggest, most talked about especially by Jesus, topic in our Bible? No, Randy. It's part of it. But no. The kingdom. The kingdom. There is nothing, nothing talked about more than the kingdom, whether it's of heaven or whether it's of God or whether it's of the Father, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the Father. If you go back and you read your red letters, that's all Jesus talks about is the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. Next question is this. When does the kingdom arrive? Is it something that has come? Is it something that's here now? Is it something only, only future like a lot of people will teach? The kingdom is going to come and is not here. Right? And this one's trick because it's debated, right? And, and I don't believe there's one answer to it. There's a reason it's, it's debated, but the question is like, has it come or is it still future? Uh, if I answer that, I will say yes. Yes, that's the answer. Uh, it is now, it has come, and it's not yet. 
Um, I'll show you why. If you go to, um, are we, where are we? Did I have you go to Mark? Let's go to Luke. Let's go to Luke. We're just going to run around the Gospels, okay? Luke chapter 11. Listen carefully to what Jesus says here regarding what's actually going on when he heals this mute, physical, and he exercises the demon that this guy has. He's going to do both these things in this instant. And then listen as he's questioned afterward um, to what he says carefully. Uh, in Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 14, now he... Now he, Jesus, was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. I'm not even going to try to touch this. Like you go home and have fun with that. Like the, the idea that there are demons of different like physical ailments is like, you know, blow your brains out type stuff. So like I don't understand it, but this is, this is what it's saying here. Verse 15, but some of them said he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? It's a good question. That's a whole other study too. Therefore, they will be your judges. But, verse 20, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, which we all know it was, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. They are watching the power and the, the existence, the manifestation of the kingdom of God among them when they watch Jesus do these things. Wherever the king is, there his kingdom is. And Jesus is here at this time exercising full power, authority, and dominion over everything that's his as the greatest king. That's what we see going on here. And, 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 and if this is true, what this means is that one kingdom is actually overthrowing another kingdom. Do you get that? We have a kingdom that's now come to do something new, meaning that it's having to overthrow the one that currently exists, which is Satan's kingdom, the power of the prince of the air of this world, currently to that point. That's why there are demons possessing people. That's why there are mutes unable to talk. That's why there are seizures. We're seeing all the effects of Satan's kingdom, and now we have this other kingdom that's coming to overthrow it. I want now to read you something real quick because Mark also actually has this account. These, it's, it's a bummer that, that these passages always get hijacked, like the goods of them, because of like the whole unpardonable sin and blasphemy of the Holy Spirit thing. Like we're all so interested in that and so mystified and intrigued and scared about what that is, that that's all we see when we come to these passages. There's so much being said here. If we like can just get that out of our brains for a minute and look at some of what Jesus is teaching us here. 
Mark um, follows this across too into his gospel, but he adds this little teensy parable at the end of the narrative. And it says this, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. And then indeed, he may plunder his house. This is what we see going on when Jesus starts his ministry and he starts healing people and casting out demons. We're seeing a stronger man come into a strong man's house, bind him, and plunder it. One kingdom overthrowing another. This is all kingdom. Everything that we're seeing when we see healing and an emphasis on healing and why Jesus was healing. He's saying, he's saying, that which they see him performing in the healing and the purging in Satan's kingdom being plundered um, is, is, is that of a stronger man ushering in a new kingdom, a greater kingdom, a better kingdom. He's saying a stronger man is here, a greater kingdom is with him. When we see Jesus healing all kinds of ailments and all kinds of people, the takeaway is not that if you come to Jesus, he will heal you. The takeaway is that he is the king of kings come down from heaven because he's able to exercise authority over all things including sin. When Jesus heals, it screams kingdom authority. It speaks to the authentication of Jesus as Messiah. He may be healing people, but what's he preaching? What's he preaching? I would go back to Matthew where we're at today, and there's one line leading into the verses we took today. It's in verse 17. I think it was Chad that we ended with this. From the time Jesus began to preach, he said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is what we have going on here. We have an overthrow of the previous kingdom, and we have an ushering in by a stronger man, a better king, a new kingdom, who has authority over all things. What Jesus says here, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, is the bait that he would teach his disciples to catch fish on land with, and it is the same bait that fish are caught with today. This is the kind of bait that you and I need to use when we fish on land for men. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And all those who are being saved, well jump on that hook. They well jump on that hook. So let's go into this community with that word, with that confidence of a greater kingdom behind us and in front of us. Lord, thank you so much for the text. And um, though we don't do it justice, we just, I mean, barely scratch the surface. Um, it causes me to worship. It just opens um, my heart wide to think of you in these terms. Um, that are so much bigger than I usually think of you, to think in uh, the terms of, of your kingdom and your power and authority and dominion over all things in a way that I, I just miss sometimes from day to day. I, I can make you so small and so personal, um, which is awesome, but, but to step back and to see um, how big um, your power stretches and how much it changes um, is my, it's staggering. It's staggering at that point to think that you would even pay attention to someone like me. And so um, I just praise you. I thank you that you are a worthy, worthy king 
of following. I pray that we would follow you. Our eyes would be firmly fixed on you, that no matter what goes on around us, no matter how much the lights go out, we would keep our eyes fixed on on you, the light of you, um, and that we would persevere, God, that we would glorify you and and please you, God, and live in a way that's pleasing um, every day, God. So help us to do so. Empower us to do so. Uh, Meet us all where we're at today. Um, There's There's obviously some brokenness going on, God. We ask again that you would just minister uh, in a special way to each person where they are right now, God. Meet them there um, and be big even there. Um, uh, Heal, God, according to your will, even there, um, even now. Um, And we thank you again, Lord, um, for moms. (laughs) I thank you for my mom. I thank you for my wife, who's the mother of my four kids, um, and just all the moms that are here, God. Bless them today, God. Um, Just smile upon them today. We ask in Jesus' name.